<laughs> Let's adjust the bike. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So I did something that I don't normally do yesterday. What did you do? I went to Starbucks. I just like don't normally do it. Like inside you went? <laughs> so I just the drive. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> uh, so I don't normally go at all. And then I did a lot in college, you know, sure. but I, so this story is so, I don't know why I'm telling it, but I went, I was going to go through the drive through and then they had a big sign out front that said the order box has moved. So I was like, oh, well I'm out by like Hanover, Pennsylvania. So like, I don't know where it was or where it's going to, but like, I guess I'll pull forward. So then I went to the window and there was nobody there, no box. So I was like, is the box back to the thing? So then I got, so then I just went inside. I just parked and went inside. A bold move. And they A were shocked to see someone in the store. I don't think they get anyone in the store because it's, again, in Hanover, Pennsylvania. People are it's not swinging like, through. Right. It's not one that, like, people go to to work at. And so they were like, oh, hi. And I was like, <laughs> hello. And they're like, we'll be right with you. And I said, okay. i was just standing there and i was like fuck and now i don't know what to get because they don't put a lot of their items on the menu yeah so i just pick something on the fall list i was like i'm gonna get the apple crisp oat milk latte so good let me tell you it is so delicious i love it i love it i love it (laughs) i because i was like i've had the pumpkin spice before and like it's like a little too sweet for me it's very sweet so i was like i'm gonna try the apple crisp i've never heard of it before let me tell you, if you're not getting it, you are sl- you got to stop sleeping on it. Yeah. It is delicious. Well, it's almost out of season now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Peppermint is rearing its head. By the time you hear this, it's gone. You got to get a gingerbread mocha. Um, so if you, if it's still in your Starbucks, I would highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, the, you know, I, the call box thing really threw me. <laughs> Maybe they just Where are shutting the store it? down. <laughs> And they and they don't want people coming anymore. Well, the other great part about being in the store was they had all these boxes and they had these big stickers on them that said "No peeking, holiday secrets inside." Stop it! I was like, oh, they must be like the holiday cups, you know, like the Christmas cups. Oh, so I was like, should I sneak a peek? You should have snuck a peek. Well, well, you're in a different state. You're gonna cross state lines. You're a felon. It doesn't matter. But we're not here to talk about Starbucks. No, we're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. I felt so inept this week. Me too. Roman (laughs) politics is so hard. Yeah. And because uh, and I'm doing like the Enlightenment period and, you know, just some people that are surrounded by very famous people that I just. Yeah, it was hard. This is a. But it's OK. We thank but it's you. Great, we we thank had such you. a fun time learning. Um, I so. learned so many things. <laughs> <laughs> so we're drinking the entire time. We do all of our research on the Internet. It's I mean, literally my only source this week is Wikipedia. <laughs> this is a hodgepodge. Yes. Um, so if you're expecting greatness. Lower those expectations. Go to the history chicks. <laughs> yeah, the, the history, history chicks. chicks. <laughs> um, but we know that you're busy. We know that you are trying to find the order box at the Starbucks and you have to stay focused. 
So you can't pull out your phone and Google what these women look like. You're driving in circles. Yeah, around the Starbucks. (laughs) And so you don't have time for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Ellie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I am doing Ella Galabas, who uh, was identified male at birth. They lived in Syria and was a, a pro- in a prominent Arabic family. Okay. Like many Roman emperors slash empresses, they're often portrayed as white or at least white passing, but uh-huh. this was definitely an Arabic person. Um, one reason Elagalabis is, which is like a terrible pronunciation. I heard a thousand pronunciations, <laughs> but that's what I'm going with. Uh, one reason Elagalabis is so famous, despite their short life, is due to how they presented. It was recorded that they often painted their eyes and wore other forms of makeup. And due to a past as a priest, they wore long silken robes and adorned themselves with jewelry and gold. Um, so that is what Ella Galabis looks like. Okay. So I am doing Honora Sneed. Honora was described by everyone around her as a very beautiful woman. From the drawings we have of her, she appears to have fine, delicate features, pale skin, rosy cheeks. And in most of these pictures, she is wearing a big hat, like a bonnet kind of thing with a big sash around it. And her head is typically buried in a book. And like a bell? Uh-huh. Her nose like. stuck in a book. <laughs> that's great. Uh, tell me what I'm drinking. It looks delicious. All right. So you came up with this cocktail name, and it's so good. It's called Everybody Needs a Sneed. You get it, guys? The Lorax? <laughs> Do you get it? It is a very simple spiced screwdriver. It is but with bourbon. Bourbon, <laughs> so orange it's juice. Not a, not a screwdriver at all. It just it has orange juice. Bourbon, <laughs> orange juice, and spiced simple syrup. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. I love it. Mm. It's so interesting. You expect the orange juice to be sweet. Mm-hmm. I actually like mm. orange juice cocktails sometimes really annoy me because mm-hmm. there's so much yeah. to deal with. Mm. I like this one. Yeah, I like it a lot. It's a little bitter, and the spice makes it. Um, it feels more like a like a uh, mold wine mm-hmm. than um, a, a screwdriver. Yeah, <laughs> and it is not at all. What a weird screwdriver! I- <laughs> this is a Phillips head. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I hate myself. So what do you know? Oh, and cheers to Elsie Marshall for the request. Yay! Cheers, Elsie. Thank you. Perfect. Mm. Goodness. So what do you know about Honora Sneed? Uh, I don't I also I'm, hope it's not snide. <laughs> so I, I didn't check. There's no YouTube or podcast about her, so I did well, not Well, you know check. what? That's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. Um... <laughs> I I never heard of this person before. I've never heard of their name. I don't know who they are. Okay, perfect. This is dramatic for me. Um, and again, I got all of my information from Wikipedia because there's nothing else on her. So, Honora Sneed was born in 1751 to Edward Sneed and Susanna Cook. She was the third daughter and one of eight children. <laughs> her father was a major in the Royal Horse Guards with an appointment at court as a gentleman usher. Uh, But unfortunately, when she was just like five or six years old, her mother died and her father was faced with a difficult situation. 
he could not take care of all children by himself. So various friends and family members just kind of split them up and took them. Honora found herself adopted by Canon Thomas Seward and his wife, Elizabeth. And this particular family had seven children. I thought you said Seward. Like his last name is the the Seward. <laughs> I was like, whoa. I was like, Katie, if it's his last name, you can say it. Can you, because his title is Canon. Can you imagine Canon Cunt? <laughs> that would be so funny. <laughs> but no. Wow. Seward. Or maybe it's Seward. No, I think no, Seward. But there's C-word. no YouTube video. If you know these pronunciations, yeah, please make a YouTube know. video. Make one. This particular family had seven children, but had lost five of them already to illnesses and whatnot. So I think they were happy to take Honora in and treat her as a true member of the family. They lived in Litchfield, or maybe Lickfield, <laughs> Staffordshire. <laughs> wow. And you know what? I went through this verbally, so like I've already I, and I just didn't even think about the pronunciations. Yeah, but they're also earlier. in a part of the the world where like vowels have very different pronunciations from yeah. ours. Yes. So and like I unfair. feel like some people like in the same area would be like it's Staffordshire, and right. some would be like it's Staffordshire, and yeah. you're like. Who's right? Who's to say? (laughs) I'm definitely wrong. So (laughs) they lived here in the Bishop's Palace uh, because I also found out this week that a canon is a member of the Catholic priesthood. Um, So the Bishop's Palace was like this really cool big building where all the religious guys Isn't the canon the music guy? I don't know. I think so. I that think was the d- Darth Vader <laughs> theme. Well, you know. Um, I'm from I an era. don't know. I copy and pasted that sentence from sure. Wikipedia. I'm pretty sure that's what they are. I think like the the canon person is the music person. Okay, tell me if I'm wrong. That makes sense. Canon and D. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is off the rails <laughs> already. So now Anora has two sisters, Anna and Sarah. She was initially closer to Sarah, who was a little closer to her in age, but unfortunately, like. Every other child in this story, Sarah died when she was 19 of typhus. 19? mm -hmm. Oh, I hate typhus. Yeah. So then it was just Anna and Honora left. Uh, And even though Anna was seven years older than Honora, the two became very close. Thankfully, one good thing that came out of all of this death and destruction uh, was Honora's exposure to her adopted father, Thomas Seward. He was a super (laughs) big proponent of women's education. You could even say he wrote the book on it. Not really at all, though. He just wrote a poem about it called The Female Right to Literature. Oh, well, okay. Which is very nice. I'll take tiny steps. Yeah. Tiny steps where we can get them. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas Cunt. <laughs> and in kind of a funny twist, his wife was actually not in favor of the education of girls at all. But thankfully, he got final say in this one. I love partners that have totally different political opinions. I know. It blows my mind, and I love it. Um, Anora was described as clever. She was interested in science, but through her friendship with Anna, she grew to develop her love for literature. She was an accomplished scholar attending a day school in Litchfield where she became fluent in French. She was so fluent that she traded, she translated a whole book, uh, for Anna. It was Rousseau's Julie. I don't know what book that is. I can't even read Rousseau in English. Yeah. Never Let alone before this trans- research. <laughs> Katie. <laughs> I know. I love you. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this? Because he's coming up later, too. Listen, I have never heard of him. <laughs> if you die first, I'm I'm going to at your funeral be like, 
This is Rousseau, Katie's favorite author. <laughs> and then just recite during your eulogy. Her favorite philosopher. <laughs> it was his philosopher's stone that kept her going in the end. But she gave yes. it up so that Voldemort could live forever. I hate it's it. It's going to be a very convoluted funeral. <laughs> yeah. Your parents are going to be furious yeah. with me. Yeah. <laughs> the household itself was a breeding ground for learning. Intellectuals of the day would often swing through, and the girls were encouraged to take part in their discussions. There were a few that were listed on the Wikipedia page, but I had no idea who they were, so I didn't feel like writing them down. <laughs> Not worth it. Not worth it. <laughs> Not worth mispronouncing five more names did they have blue were they blue pronouncing is it mispronouncing <laughs> yeah it's fine i was gonna let it fly were they blue and underlined like could you click on them yes okay then people can find it themselves sure i i was just like i've never heard of any of these men yeah. not like rousseau <laughs> <laughs> not like rousseau who is very famous philosopher who wrote julie i even hated <laughs> a philosophy major okay doesn't count no <laughs> that doesn't mean you went to the classes that's okay that's true maybe your philosophy major boyfriend was like i hate rousseau and maybe i don't I know never want to talk about <sighs> the ideals of rousseau all i know is he was drawing diagrams like it's like it looked like it looked like math equations for philosophy philosophy, class. philosophy classes are so hard my brain can't stretch that far. it's so much yeah I only took like 100 and 200 level ones for my history major. Yeah. Nope. No, thanks. No, I, I can't. can't do it. I'm, it's beyond. <laughs> it's beyond the capacity of my brain power. I am a rote memorization. <laughs> <laughs> what year was the war of 1812? <laughs> 1812. Got it. To 1814, I think. <laughs> Don't quote us. Don't quote me on that. Um, okay. <laughs> Didn't know who those guys were. Not going to mention them. As Honora grew older, she had reputation. It was both Play-Doh. <laughs> Socrates. Uh, that is a Bill and Ted reference. Uh, she had a reputation for both intelligence and beauty. Anna, her adopted Same. sister, even described her once as, quote, Fresh and beautiful as the young day star when he bathes his fair beams in the dews of spring. Is her step half sister adopted sister a philosopher as well? No, but she is a poet. And so, now, because of this comment and some of the very intense loving letters, some historians believe that there's more to their relationship than friendship and sisterhood. Anna Seward became a very well known poet whose poems often end up in the lesbian poetic canon. Another canon. <laughs> Different kind of canon. Different kind of canon. This is book canon. We can't label her 100% because, you know, it's difficult to do that with historical figures. But we do know that she felt very passionately about Honora as well as some other women. She was very against marriage. And she named her dog Sappho. Well, I was going to say, don't they call that sapphic poetry? Yes. Like if it's in the lesbian canon? Yes. Very cool. So the fact that she named her dog Sappho, like, I think is. Hint, hint. A big hint. <laughs> oh, wink. But it also appears that Anna set her up with a few men, so I really don't know what to think. Get and, your cover, girl. Yeah, I don't know. Get your cover. Case in point, Anna apparently encouraged a relationship between Honora and a man named John Andre. <laughs> and when Honora was 17, the two became engaged. And if the name John Andre sounds familiar, it's because he was hanged as a spy in 1771 for his involvement in... The Benedict Arnold scandal. We learned about him. Yes, we did. We learned about him already. In the 
Penelope Arnold. Uh, what was her name? Penelope Arnold. I think that's right. <laughs> Arnold's wife. Whatever. Arnold's Benedict wife. Arnold's wife, who was like pretending to be sickly. Yes. Or something. Something like Somebody that. near her remember. was pretending to be sickly. Yeah. Uh, the Hamiltons are involved. It's yes. a whole thing. So that was her betrothed. <laughs> and then he's hanged. And the family is like, yeah, it didn't work out because of a money thing. I don't really know. Because um, it was there. The whole situation was so messy. They're just being like, secret, secret. Uh, but don't worry. Shortly after this, she had two men calling upon the Seward household to court mm. her. A man named Thomas Day and another named Richard Edgeworth. Uh, they were spending a lot of time <laughs> at the house, dropping by unannounced just to check in, have some tea, even though Mr. Edgeworth was already married. So... It was Mr. Day who proposed, but to many people's surprise, she rejected him due to his view on the rights of women. He thought that it was a woman's place to stay at home and asserted that men are the heads of the household and should never be questioned. And she wholeheartedly disagreed, saying she did not plan to change the status of her freedom anytime soon. Mr. Edgeworth was monitoring the situation closely, and he said about it, Ms. Honora Sneed would not admit the unqualified control of a husband over all her actions. She did not feel that seclusion from society was indispensably necessary to preserve female virtue or to secure domestic happiness. But around this time, her life was about to change for a man. Her father had moved to their little town of Litchfield from London and was seeking to regain contact with his five surviving daughters. Honora was 19, and she decided to go back and live with him, which really upset Anna. Uh, and now the Sneed girls were back together, and Thomas Day makes an appearance again and proposed to Honora's younger sister, Elizabeth Sneed. She rejected him as well. Whoa! <laughs> so I thought this was about to be a, a Little Women situation, nope. but no. Nope, nope. Amy March was also like, get the yeah, get the fuck, fuck out of here. Me. I think Honora was like, he is going to trap you in a household and make you bear 10 children, and what you will never be like? able to leave. Is he hot? Who knows? Do we know? I guess I, I'd like it even better if he was hot, honestly. Is like it worth it? Hot is it worth like, it? It's not worth it. For, for a gilded cage? No. No. Okay, perfect. Absolutely not. Glad we're on the same page here. <laughs> um, now, the second suitor, who we talked about earlier. Oh, the married guy. The married guy, Richard Edgeworth. He was deeply in love with Honora, to the point where he was writing about her and talking about her constantly. His friends all knew that he was obsessed with her, and he even <laughs> wrote once, I was six and 20, and now for the first time in my life, I saw a woman that equaled the picture of perfection, which existed in my imagination. Whoa. That's a big, big statement. He's bold. <laughs> he's so obsessed with her. And he's 26, and he just now he's saw a person? Yes. And, and he loves And How long has he been married? Uh, all right. I'm guessing people got married at like 19, so they've probably been married seven years. They already have three children. Well, yeah, of course. His wife is busy. She's busy. She doesn't have time to like um, put on her not mascara that they don't own. Exactly. And he's like not shy about discussing how unhappy his marriage is, which is probably, you know, going hand in hand with his obsession with Honora. It's like, of course, you're not going to be happy with your wife when you're obsessed with another woman. It's a very Elizabeth Proctor. Yes. Um, <laughs> is that Goody Proctor? <laughs> Goody Proctor. Never seen The Crucible. Don't know what it's about. You're kidding. Just kidding. I know it's about witch trials. But I you never... would love it. Really? Okay. You and Casey would love it. it. And it's so is it, short. Is it a movie? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch The Crucible. I mean, it's they're reading the screenplay. Okay. So it's Arthur Miller's play. Okay. But in movie form, and he wrote it as a... um. 
metaphor to uh, communism, the Red <gasps> really? Scare. So it's very interesting because it's like laid on top. It's like multiple layers of history happening. Okay. So good. What's her face is in it? Lucina Ricci? Nope. Even better. Yep. <laughs> Which spooky girl are you talking about? <laughs> the spooky one. <laughs> yeah, it's so, I watched it with the girls just uh, recently when we okay. were coming up to Halloween on like a Friday night. They really Is enjoyed it. Is it a good it. Halloween movie? Uh, it's a good right now movie. It's a right fall now, movie. Fall, fall movie. movie. It's a fall movie. Okay. Very witchy. Perfect. And also like crazy religious shit, you know. Excellent. Real fall. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So. He's obsessed with her. But Edward was a man of honor. So he literally moved to France to stop himself from doing anything stupid. He's like, I don't want to cheat on my wife, but I am obsessed with this woman. So he just moved to France to get away from the whole situation. Two years later. I heard distance makes the heart go yeah. harder. March of 1773. His wife, Anna, gives birth to their fifth child. Childbed fever. That's a daughter. Dies. Ten days later, dies of yeah. <laughs> postpartum infection. So I'm sorry. At this point, they had four children. Gave birth to the fifth one. She dies of postpartum infection. And a few days after that, literally days after, Richard is on the train back to London to propose to Honora. He had absolutely no intention of waiting the traditional amount of, like, morning time. Like, there's, like, a social cue of, like, do not propose to another woman days after your wife dies. And did he, what's going on with this new baby? I believe the baby survives and comes with him. I think he left her with the wet nurse. You know, shows this guy's up, got money. So he shows like, up on Honora's doorstep and is like, are you ready to be a stepmom? Are you ready? <laughs> are you ready? <laughs> are you ready for it? <laughs> so she says, yes, I'm ready. Give me all the children. Um, although Mr. Sneed, so this is her bio dad, he was opposed to his daughter's marriage. The couple were indeed married at Litchfield Cathedral on July 17, 1773, officiated by her adopted father, Canon Thomas Seward, um, which is like so funny to me. Like you're being walked down the aisle by your bio dad, but then like your adopted father, the guy who raised you is marrying you. Like, is that weird? It is kind of weird. It's kind of funny. I don't know. But apparently like this was kind of like a common thing. So like, I don't really think she thought too much of it. So did she love Richard as well? The fact that she said yes, yes. right when he came back. Okay. I think she was I think she was like enamored with him. Yeah. And he ends up having like a shit ton of wives. So like I think he was like a kind of charming, handsome guy. Okay. We'll see. So we'll see. So <laughs> dun dun dun. Uh, and of course her adopted sister slash suspected lover Anna Seward was her maid of honor, also awkward, even though she was thoroughly opposed to the marriage and she was devastated like this marriage broke Anna. Like the love of her life is getting married. Yeah. To this guy. So immediately after the marriage, Richard had some business to attend to in Ireland, so the whole family picked up and moved there. So Obviously, like we mentioned, she enters this marriage and becomes a stepmother to his four surviving children. So he had four, had the fifth one, but then I think one of them died. But I don't think it's the baby because the children ranged in age from seven months to nine years. Okay, yeah, it can't be the baby. Can't be the baby. So one of them died in between here. <laughs> so the children right now are Richard, Maria, Emmeline, and Anna Maria. Fan trap. So <laughs> now they have a new mommy. They're moving to a new country, and this all, of course, can have a pretty serious effect on a young child. And Anora <laughs> soon discovered that 
Maria and Richard were exhibiting behavioral problems. They were wild and unruly. They didn't want to listen. Uh, apparently, Richard and his first wife had been implementing the Rousseau method, which was based on experiences rather than traditional learning, opting for practical rather than theoretical education. He said, let the child learn nothing from the book that they can learn from the experience. Now, of course, there are some benefits to this style as well as some downfalls. And it appears that simply doing just the Rousseau method was not really working for Richard Jr. and Maria. So as all new mothers do, she was like, I know exactly how to handle this. And that's the practical way, speedy and consistent punishment. (laughs) (laughs) But then she also had this belief that she was like, ooh, but also the discipline needs to be imposed before the age of five. So it's kind of too late for them. So I'm still going to be like really strict with them, but not as strict as I would be if they were younger. So. She's just kind of coming into this with a theory and kind of realizing that it's not quite working. So like the Rousseau method wasn't working. Her method is also quite not working. So they did the old tried and true and just sent both of the kids away to boarding school. Sure. (laughs) Let the nuns deal with them. So this also may have something to do with the fact that Honora was soon pregnant and gave birth to her daughter, Honora Jr. on May 30th, 1774. Honora. Uh, I think being pregnant and a new stepmom to two mourning out of control children was just like too much for her. So off they went. But this really got Anora thinking about childhood education. She was like, I know that what we were doing wasn't quite working, but I want to know why. And both her and Richard were not overly pleased with the options they had when it came to children's books. So they decided that they were going to write a series of books for children. One of the first people they were influenced by was Anna Barbald. Anna was a pioneer in child's reading. And according to Honora and Richard, their two youngest, so Anna and Honora, which is so wild to me because I feel like Anna and Honora could have been this couple <laughs> in this other timeline. So Anna and Honora Juniors had learned to read <laughs> in just six weeks after using Barbald's book, Lessons for Children from Two to Three Years Old. So then they started reviewing the existing literature on childhood education, including Locke, Hartley, Priestley, in addition to Rousseau. John Locke! Mm -hmm. And then they proceeded to document their observations of the behavior of children to develop their own, quote, practical system. Richard later stated that Honora was of the opinion that the art of education should be considered as an experimental science and that the failures of the past were due to following theory rather than practice. So basically, people in the past were just going on their ideas without actually doing any kinds of experiments or observations to see if it was working. (laughs) And she wanted to change that. She thought it was pretty crazy to just educate children without any scientific proof that this was actually an effective way of doing it properly. (laughs) So she decided to do it herself. One of the things that they liked about Barbald's method of teaching children how to read was that she rewarded learning and made it a pleasurable activity for children. So it wasn't exactly that she was awarding them with prizes for reading. She was just making it so that they ended up kind of accidentally enjoying it. And Mm. then that increased their desire to read. And after years of observing and recording, Honora and Richard wrote the first version of their book, which was called Practical Education. 
And it's interesting because they wrote it first as a children's book. So it's also been called The History of Harry and Lucy. This book tells a simple story of two parents and their two model children, Harry and Lucy, who carry out domestic chores and they ask their parents lots of questions, the answers to which may be deemed educational. The children explain their discoveries and how they learn, and in the end, they present nine forms of learning. And it seemed like this version of the book was meant to be read by parents to children so that both can kind of learn at the same time, because that was a big part of her research. She said that childhood education needed to be integrated into the daily lives of the family. She wanted to change how parents interacted with their kids, a way for them to be more involved. So she wrote about Harry and Lucy asking parents questions because kids have always asked parents questions. Sure. A million sure, questions. Sure, sure. And it can be really easy to brush them off and not answer. But Honora encouraged parents to use that as a point of engagement. Honora also wanted the whole community to be involved. So she wrote these like first two volumes of Practical Education with Richard, but then wanted to expand the circle of contributors. Honora and Edward had long been a part of the Lunar Society, which was a British dinner club. Um, it was kind of um, an informal society of prominent figures of the Enlightenment era, including industrialists, philosophers, intellectuals. And she wanted to bring this to them so that they all could collaborate on more volumes. It was a really ambitious project designed to fill what they perceived as a major deficiency in the field of both technical and scientific education. She wanted to introduce early ideas on morality, science, and other academic disciplines into the developing minds of young children. So in her mind, it was like, well, why not involve the people who are changing her mind on a regular basis? She was on to some really exciting things, but then on May 1st, 1780, she died suddenly from consumption. So she had written the first two hmm. volumes of her work and published them locally, but had never published them widely. And of course, she wasn't really done her work. So after her death, Richard ended up marrying her sister, Elizabeth. Kind of weird, but okay. <laughs> and Elizabeth ended up continuing her work because they had all these kids. So they were like, well, let's practice it out on the kids. And like those were like her test subjects, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth then continued the work because then she had her own kids to like, you know, observe and write about. Um, and then after Elizabeth died, Richard decided to finish the book with his daughter, Maria. Maria Edgeworth, who we talked about earlier, the unruly child, ended up becoming a famous writer in her own right. She wrote literature for adults and children during the first, um, and during the first decade of the 19th century, she was one of the most widely read novelists in Britain and Ireland, which is very cool. So there's like a whole Maria Edgeworth, like foundation never heard of her. <laughs> so even though she may not have had the closest relationship with her stepmother, Maria did come to appreciate all of the work that Honora had done to research childhood education. So she took up the mantle and she had plenty of kids to observe because her father ended up having another wife after Elizabeth. So four total. Oh. And with his four wives, he had 22 children. That is too many children. Too many. Especially when you like ignored the first five and like came to like pick up your honey and now yeah. you're trying to write books about childhood education. I know. I don't really <laughs> care for the husband that much. Um, but anyways, she and Richard finished and published the final version of Practical Education in 1798. So this was kind of like a combination of 
Nora's first two volumes and all the research she had done, some of Elizabeth's research, and some of Maria's own research. And this book ended up becoming very influential in the world of education. It discusses the importance of things like hands-on learning, experiments, and putting illustrations in books. <laughs> because you, like, they were like, we need illustrations to keep children's attention because it's hard for them to just look at a page just of full-on words. Like, illustrations are really important. Um, and they wanted to try and, and focus on keeping children's attention by engagement rather than force. The book encouraged teachers to look for signs of fatigue in children because if they're exhausted, they will not be as attentive. So don't punish the kids who are tired and can't stay focused in class because with more work, they're just going to get more tired. The teaching of children needed to follow more carefully considered methods focused on empowering and enabling, not fatiguing or disabling, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so although her brilliant stepdaughter Maria finished the book and absolutely added her own research into things, Anora was really the person who got things started and got us thinking about an education system based on engagement, which I think has continued to blossom in making education better and more accessible for all different types of kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's it. That's all I could find. But I, I did. It. I love the ideas that are presented in this because you can see the roots of like, you know, we talked about the pre-K woman last week, you know, Susan Blow, who like did so much for early childhood education. And I know that her big influence was Foible. Foible? Yeah, Foible. Foible. Um, and I wonder if, like, that was also influenced by, like, Honora's findings. Yeah, absolutely. Know? And, like, I mean, Rousseau's idea of teaching people practically mm -hmm. does make sense. Like, yes, the American education system, many education systems are set up to train kids to be in the workforce. Like, that's its goal. It's not trained for, like, the way it used to be where you had a private tutor who was, uh -huh. like, obsessed with learning and wanted to teach you to learn. Yeah. Like, that's why so many of those, like, kings and nobles were so knowledgeable because they were teaching them like with this passion yeah mm -hmm. which we we it's very lackluster in a lot of standard education yeah it's not passionate and I also love the idea of like if kids are tired don't make their life even harder <laughs> it's like especially nowadays when like I mean for all time really you can't even say nowadays like kids have always had stuff going on at home that you don't know about that make it harder for them it's like it's kind of like we were talking recently about how like homework is not really standard anymore mm -hmm. because you cannot like you can kind of control what goes on in the classroom but you have no idea what kids are dealing with outside of school whether they have internet access whether their parents are fighting all night so like they can't have a quiet space to do their work they're you know? watching their little brother and sister exactly. there's so much like there's so much inequality in children's home lives that like a kid who whose parents can pay for a private tutor after school to help them with work or like, you know, can help them with their homework. You cannot expect them to be performing the same and like come to school the same way the next day no. after being up all night stressed about homework. And I also just don't think like we should be training children to believe when you go home from eight hours of work, you There's should work. be doing more work. Yeah. That's another factory system mm -hmm. that we have to get away from. We have to. Yeah. Free time is your free time yeah and I also love that like there's a portion of her research that's like hey when your kids are asking you questions like don't ignore them she's like 
kids ask questions because they're curious about the world, which I think is like such a good point. Cause like, I know, like, I don't, I'm not a parent, but like, I've been around kids who like are just asking question after question after mm-hmm. question. And sometimes, yeah, they're like nonsense questions. I'm like, it's the why game, you know, why, why, why? why? Yeah. But, <laughs> but in, they're curious. And yeah. like, they, sometimes they do really want to know things. And, and in general, when you stop talking to them, they stop talking to you in general mm-hmm. what what who else are they going to ask these questions to their peers who yeah. know nothing right <laughs> and i just kind of like that in the you know 1700s she's telling people like hey be more engaged with your kids like your kids are kind of important you know and maybe that was the benefit of coming in as a stepmom you know and these kids that are like kind of half already like half of them were kind of they're already cooked in their ways <laughs> and like half of them were still kind of malleable so like she really did have a wide range of like okay what are we going to try what's going to ha- what's going to yeah. shape these young minds right um so yeah wide sample size <laughs> so that's, yeah by the end uh yeah so that was Honora and a little bit of maria Edgeworth, i love who, it yeah i love that <laughs> what a fun story she had some wild things going on yeah Okay. All right, lady. I felt like her story takes like a hard turn. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, she did have like an interesting early life. And then it was just like what she was writing and researching. She's like, yep, I'm doing it. I'm she was like went it. hard into adulthood. Yes, she did. <laughs> yes, she did. All right. Well, are you ready for a vastly different story with absolutely <laughs> nothing in common? Nothing in common. Perfect. Let's do it. Yay. There's absolutely nothing I can say about this research. Um, Emily Hill requested this. Emily, longtime listener, friend in Philly. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Emily. For this request. I learned so many things. It's very interesting. Okay. That there's so much contradiction <laughs> on this research. So let's first start with um the cocktail yeah what am i drinking it's called a simple story (laughs) and it's a kind of a negroni which is a very famous roman empire cocktail Mm -hmm. which is equal parts gin campari and red vermouth but i split the gin and made it half gin half vodka okay and then i also added club soda and an orange on top to make it like a bubbly negroni Cheers. (laughs) cheers I like it. Actually, yeah. the club soda kind of cuts the bitterness of the Campari, and I like it. Yeah, Negronis are such a bitter drink. Yeah. Um, This actually is delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I might drink a Negroni with club soda from now on. Also, it just, when you said a bubbly Negroni, it reminded me of that internet thing a couple, like a while ago. Mm. Where I was like, what's your favorite drink? A Negroni. Spagliato. <laughs> <laughs> with Prosecco. I love TikTok. It reminded me of that. Here we are. Um, Here I am again explaining an internet thing, which I hate when people do to me. So I'm sorry (laughs) to do it to all of you. It's okay, everybody. You all know what we're talking about. It's fine. Uh, But I know nothing about Elagabalus. Elagabalus. (laughs) Elagabalus. I just want to call them L. Oh. Hey, L. Yeah. Like L. Woods. Yeah. Or L. Fanning. Yeah. Or Eleven. You just, <laughs> you just nickname Eleven. <laughs> it's like part of an experiment. That's what Mike calls her. Okay, oh. that's true. Okay, okay. Anyways, 
I don't I know nothing. So there's nothing I can add to this situation. Good. <laughs> so I called this cocktail a simple story because it's anything <laughs> but a simple story. But first, I want to say that articles on this are very divisive. I'm going to try to report facts in the sense that I'm going to say this article says this and this article says that. Okay. First, it's very important to say that when we label people with today's understanding of the transgender label, we're kind of doing them a disservice Mm -hmm. because it just the same mindset didn't exist. But Mm -hmm. I still think this is such an amazingly valid conversation to be had over this person. Okay. Um, Elagabalus absolutely could have identified as a woman. There's a lot of evidence that this person did that. Um, But there's also many reasons in this story that you will see that the Romans did not like them and therefore tarnished their um, name with bad press. Okay. So it could go like a couple different ways where it's like they could have truly identified as female or like they could have been like trying to like demoralize their character is that okay yeah which is hard to read because we obviously the sources are very old and they're also very like divisive right this person was not well liked right because frankly it's like we would not consider like someone transitioning as like a bad thing Mm -hmm. you know so we're not trying to say no but that's how the romans felt that was would be how they would feel about it right which to me what that says about this story is that yes the idea of transitioning and trans people did exist in the roman empire and i think that brings name to an important thing that a lot of people are like why is everybody trans now and it's like no people have always been trans they just didn't have the right labeling or the right science or the right medicine or yeah. the right like any of the right avenues to allow them to live the life safely right that they want to live without being abused by society mm-hmm. without um dying from improper medical care mm-hmm. or not getting coverage from insurance like yeah so i think that's a beautiful part of this story that because yeah. it's written in these roman history books we know that it's always existed Yes. That's well, nice. And Elagopolis could have also just been, you know, again, it's hard to use our terms, but like more just like gender queer, yeah. like like yes. to just express themselves and whatever. And that's why I think that they is a good term to use. That's what I've been using. For this person. Um, because I don't know. We don't know. Right. So I think it's a good term to use for someone who, you know, we don't know for sure, but obviously they did express themselves in a non- heteronormative you know cisgendered way absolutely which again is important to know that people have been doing that forever very long time not millennial invention no (laughs) we didn't make it up everybody so i wanted to preface it by saying that Mm -hmm. i'm gonna say they there as much as possible a lot of the research is written with he him pronouns so sometimes if i slip up it's not on purpose it's because i copy and pasted it (laughs) (laughs) so here we go okay Elagabalus was born around the year 203 or 204 in the year of our Lord (laughs) in the Roman Empire. Their full name at birth was Sextus Varius Avitas Berianus. Okay. So very, very Roman name. Yes. Super Roman. 
their dad was an equestrian later holding a senatorial position and mom was a cousin or something to the current emperor so she's okay. a very high standing important woman okay elagopolis's mother grandmother and aunt are all named julia okay and i kind of think the side story of this story is julia mesa which is his grandmother's name. Okay. She's a key player. Really? And a cool okay. grandma that I would like to know more than what she did just during these couple of years. So okay. we should keep her in the back of our minds. Okay. Later, there are rumors that come about that Elagopolis is the illegitimate child of the emperor that his aunt is married to. Okay. Um, but that is likely a lie. Okay. That they are trying to push so that they can, Elagabalus can become the emperor. Okay. That, like, the bloodline's closer okay. than it actually is. I see. But we know who their dad is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, whatever. Um, their dad died when Elagabalus was very, very young, uh, around the year 215. And they also had a brother who was not named in any of the texts, but also died around this year. So maybe a sickness went through okay. the town. Elagabalus's family held hereditary rights in the priesthood of the sun god Elagabal. And that's where the name change comes in. Okay. Instead of Sextus, Elagabalus, like a servant to Elagabal. Okay. And because of that, Elagabalus was raised as a high priest in Roman Syria. So in the Middle East, which is the far-reaching end of the Roman Empire, uh -huh. as, as part of, like, the rich Arabic dynasty there as a priest. Okay. This so, person. Okay. Interesting. They're very young, uh -huh. very passionate, and very religious. Okay. The name Elagabalus is the Arabic word for god of the mountain, but Elagabal is a sun god, I believe, though, like, rising over the mountains. This high priest position uh, is often referred to by the Romans as a cult. So I'm assuming oh. it's a very extreme religious sect that they kind of hate in Rome. Okay. So it's also very xenophobic. This story is very oh. xenophobic. Okay. Very gross. This is... <laughs> there are layers here. There, there are, are layers. There are so many social layers that, like, unfortunately, because, like, we're just not in that society. Like, I cannot comprehend, like, who's supposed to hate who. No. Who's actually crazy and who are they saying is crazy. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, where... It, like, is it just that their beliefs are, quote, exotic? Or yeah. is it, like, a real shade to the empire? Like, it's crazy yeah. to figure out. Oh, God. This is so interesting. My brain I, was stretched this week. Well, and I, I really flexed. <laughs> I really flexed my brain. Because I feel like what we have from the past, especially in this era, is kind of like if we literally took just the tabloids, mm -hmm. you know, and, like, no other news sources, like, just... Yeah the craziest stuff that we write about people. And also know? keeping in mind that anything people didn't want you to know, they carved over uh -huh. on purpose. And we know that yes. that happened with this person's thing. Oh, okay. So things were purposely erased about Elagabalus. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
around the time Elagabalus was 13, the emperor, his uncle of sorts, is murdered. Uncle fake death <laughs> is murdered. Um, and his aunt takes her own life. And the whole family that was living in Rome is banished from Rome. As per the usual, when an emperor is murdered, there is lots of years of unrest. There are uh-huh. several shifts in power. I'm not going to bore you with many distant members of the Elagabalus family are in power or very close to it. Um, but then grandma, grandma Julia Mesa is, sees like an inn. Okay. And she starts working um, in the temple of Syria in this political unrest with Gani, who is Elagabalus's eunuch tutor. Okay. He is a eunuch tutor. They have a eunuch tutor. Um, and also his grandmother's advisor start this plan to have the 14-year-old Elagabalus overthrow the imperial throne. Wow. Grandma <laughs> is puppet master of this yeah. story. And also, Ganny, the tutor, is ambitious and charismatic. Like, there's a lot of adults in this story that are using this teenage person. Yeah. So she spreads the rumor that Elagabalus is the illegitimate son of the recently murdered emperor. Which we already declared is not true. And also it meant that his actual mother would have been having an affair with her sister's husband. That's also kind of her cousin. Mm. But his mother is willing to take the social hit for okay. her child to be mm-hmm. emperor. Yeah. Mom, Mom Julia Jr. <laughs> is ready for it she's ready to do it okay so grandma shows up to the third legion which is like the military in that area of syria uh-huh. and she's like my grandchild is the illegitimate bastard son of the murdered emperor and they're like <laughs> okay sure whatever you say julia that makes that person like closer to emperorship than the person that's there. And they're like, well, let's tag team with this old lady. Right. Because I think a lot of people are seeing this young teen and saying like, yeah, if a teen's on the throne, we can kind of do whatever we want because they're probably not going to assert too much power over this. If they're letting their grandmother run amok. (laughs) And if they're the first people to Uh back this young person, they could be in power for a very long time. This is so interesting. Mm. The opportunities that arise. (laughs) Opportunities. (laughs) So they decide, yes, we will back Elagabalus and Grandma Julia. Julia Mesa. So at the sunrise of May 16th, your could have been wedding. (laughs) 2018. (laughs) Elagabalus in that area of the Roman Empire was declared emperor, being the at that point the youngest ever declared emperor at like 16 years old, I think, wow. 14 or 16 years old. Um, and um, as emperor, they were originally given the name Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Yeah, we love those names. Yeah, they're very they're famous. Just, just very keep famous. Keep it going. Keep it up. Keep it up. Caesar. <laughs> the person currently leading in Rome sent for their head. Kill on sight order. Mm. Kill on sight. Mm-hmm. But it fails. Wow. It fails. Elagabalus slips through. Uh-huh. And in this battle-esque format, Elagabalus kind of comes off as 
as brave because they were getting pushed back. And then Elagabalus charges and it <gasps> rallies the troops. Okay. Um, and then they win. But there's a fair bit of civil unrest, obviously, because the Roman Empire goes all the way from Spain to the like, Middle East. The Middle East. Yeah. So it's huge. It's so it's big. Huge, huge, huge. So there's so much unrest. People are delivering heads on civil silver platters everywhere you look. Uh-huh. Um so the grandma writes to the Senate as this third legion is going through like Antioch, taking heads of anybody who disagrees yeah. with Elagabalus. Grandma writes to the Senate and says, we're assuming the title of imperial leader doesn't wait for their approval. Just <laughs> says it. Just says it. Um, which this was not like polite. A, not polite the definition of fake it till you make it. It's like, <laughs> yes. fucking going. It's just like, remember in the office when who's the woman who goes into Andy's study? Uh, towards the end of the office. Um, oh, my God. What is her name? Why can't I think of it? The British woman. Nellie? Nellie. And just takes over Andy's job. Yeah. <laughs> I find it. Catherine Tate. She's so fucking So funny. funny. I love her. She's in Doctor Who as well. Um, okay. So... Grandma also says, if you acknowledge Elagabalus and take away the kill order, we won't kill you for denying them originally. Mm, so okay. the Senate goes, burr, 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 like just <laughs> signs it. And they also pretend the power struggle never existed, that it went directly from his fake dad to him. Okay. They ignore the years in between entirely right. in the record books. Yeah. So Ganny, who was the tutor, mm-hmm. ends up dying because he talks back against Elagabalus and then the guards kill him. What were you thinking, dude? If you had just ridden the, ridden the wave. 15-year-old emperor you're um, talking back to? Do you know the hormones? The hormones? Also, it's like, dude, you're in the sweet spot. You're already in the good graces. Hang out. Just hang out. Hang, hang out. 10. Uh-huh. Just relax. Uh-huh. God, float on the lazy river. Just, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how many more water references I can make. (laughs) Hang 10. Um. (laughs) So Elagabalus is then the Roman emperor. Okay. But was not in Rome yet. They're in Antioch for a bit of a time. Uh uh, Kind of quelling out all the fights that are happening. Where is Antioch? So Antioch is... Uh, like directly east of Turkey. Okay. So okay. like you're getting close. You're up on your you're way. Getting close. Yeah. But, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, I just know it is a school that we played against in school. Mm-hmm. Paul of Tarsus spent some time there. Yeah. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> now you all know where Antioch is. So, Grandma's like, okay, Elagabalus. I feel like if we're gonna go to Rome, you should start dressing different and they're like no because i'm a teenager i'm not i'm emperor i'm (laughs) I'm a child emperor so i'm not gonna start dressing different so his grandmother comes up with this idea to have elagabalus fully painted and let's send it to the roman senate ahead of time so they're not shocked when we get there so they paint a full portrait and have them hang it in the sentence, like the Senate house. And in the mornings when the Senate prays, they have to turn towards the portrait of this teenage Elagabalus. How accurate is the portrait? 
accurate? I okay, mean, like, we don't okay. have the portrait. We don't have the portrait. I wasn't sure, though. We don't know. If grandma was like, paint. No, she's worried that. They're going to be surprised. So she's yes. like, paint exactly what it is. Yes. What, what they are. Like, paint exactly how they present. Right. So that when we get so there, everybody get there, knows. Everybody's chill. Right. Okay. So that's the goal. She's trying not to catfish, like, very hard. <laughs> very hard. This is me without makeup. <laughs> but very much with makeup if you're Elagopolis. <laughs> so Elagopolis, again, like I said, was raised in Syria and was in the priesthood. And because of that styling, would today be described as more effeminate. Makeup around painted eyes. Clothing that was seen as very foreign, specifically silk robes, which was very, very female. But even remember what Rome did when they saw Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. They were like, get out. Yeah. And like we think of like the senators in these togas. Uh huh. But that would be like wearing a, a kilt versus a ball gown. Oh. You know, they are in formal attire. Yeah. And that is a dress. Uh-huh. So that's the only comparison I could come up with in yeah. my head that makes a difference. Okay. Um, also, the, like I said, the painting is in a place where the senators have to kind of pray to him, which is them, which is weird. Yeah. On the way to Rome, their group um, executes everybody <laughs> in their way. Wow. Like okay. Elagabalus and Grandma are just killing everybody with the Third <laughs> Legion. Ching, ching. The whole way. They stage a ceremonial entrance to the city and they spare the upper class that didn't, you know, agree with them. So in 219, six years after his fake dad was murdered, Elagabalus enters the city. I kind of, I feel like they were murdering people left and right to kind of up the hype. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's what they're doing. Party time. You know, and to make it look like I'm going to get here and spare you and you're mm. going to thank the gods that I, I did because obviously me and my grandma are psycho. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we <laughs> keep up with psycho. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> I feel like that was very uh, strategic of them. Sure. To be like, we're going to create a ton of bloodshed so that we're going to look so fucking merciful. merciful we're when so we get merciful. Here. It's great. Interesting. Okay. So, so it takes him six years to get there. Um, well, it's six years since his fake dad died okay. and they started this plot. Okay. And now they're there. Okay. They did the typical young emperor thing, like exploiting his fake father's villa, loving the circus Maximus, riding chariots, having dinner parties, playing uh -huh. pranks on people. This mm -hmm. is a teenager. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about the pranks later. Okay. Elagabalus had a lot of relationships okay. in Rome, both male and female, okay. and married at least five different women Okay, and several men. Okay. First, they set him up with a very wealthy, high noble woman, a noble marriage. And on the wedding day, they slaughtered 51 tigers in the Colosseum. Wow, hate that. Hate but... it. Why? Also, why 51? Like, what? what's the purpose? Um, and then they're married for a while and realize, hey, I'm a big kid now. Grandma's pulling the strings. I'm going to divorce this hot, rich wife. Divorce his hot rich wife. Um, and Never we'll... divorce the hot rich wife. <laughs> no, oh your sugar mama? Are you kidding me? <laughs> the emperor has a sugar mama. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
So we'll talk about some of the other wives that they take in a minute because the relationships are very difficult to explain. But I think it's important to think about the fact that this is a teenage person being used as a political pawn, as yes. we see as a, in a lot of stories. Uh-huh. But this is also a filthy rich teen who is using it to their advantage. Yes. <laughs> Which, so if you're going to be used, you have every right to do <laughs> right, it. Right. Do, do it. Clear. Do it. Do it. <laughs> do it. The mother and grandmother of Elagabalus mm-hmm. were very influential during their reign they are the first two women allowed on the senate floor that's cool they give them seats in the senate saying like these women know what they're talking about and Uh they help me rule yeah uh the rapid economic decline in rome though is taking place they're kind of in a recession um and their reign was not really good for that the senate had to kind of blame it on somebody yeah. And Elagabalus is going to be that person because they're young and wild. Another nail in the coffin is Elagabalus waltzed into Rome and they brought their gods with them, which many people saw as a religious cult. Yeah. They nixed the longstanding Roman gods and traditions and inserted their own gods and traditions. And it really pissed people off. Some people... Okay, so the the very popular sun god in Rome was a Persian god, I think, called Mithra. And Mithra's a very interesting Persian god because it's basically Christianity. There's an afterlife. There's somebody who's going to come down and save you. They celebrate on December 25th, which mm-hmm. is Saturnalia. Like, it's a very traditional religion. And Elagabalus brings in this other sun god that, like... A meteorite fell from the sky, and they thought it was God, so they worshipped this rock. Huh. And there's a lot going on with it, but there's some people who are like, okay, one sun god, another sun god, I'll do it. And some people who are like, no. Yeah. This is very foreign and strange and uh-huh. weird, and I don't like it. Um, well, also, like, if you've been praying to one guy and it's been fucking working for you. Right. Like, and now the economy's tanking. <laughs> right. And tigers are dying everywhere. Like, you're not going to risk it right right not gonna risk it just because there's a new emperor empress in town emperor emperor person person in town (laughs) an emperor person that's my new favorite word (laughs) this emperor person is here so elagabalus starts building new temples starts moving around religious relics that's dicey very dicey. dicey. Very dicey teenage move. Yeah. Starts also holding super long religious ceremonies that's annoying the Senate. They're nobody like, likes that. <laughs> nobody, nobody likes nobody it. Likes that. But Elagabalus was so passionate about religion. So passionate. Loved it. Loved it. So much so that they performed the cardinal sin. <gasps> After they divorced their first wife. Elagabalus did something that hadn't been done before. Uh, Instead of taking a very wealthy female partner, they said, I am going to marry the head Vestal Virgin, which take a 30-year vow of celibacy, and if they break it, they get buried alive. (gasps) So Elagabalus is like, nix that rule. That's the only person pure enough to have kids with me. Ever. Okay. Ever. So this person's life is just now fucked over. Yeah. 
Like, and it's upsetting. Like, this person doesn't get killed because Elagabalus okay, demanded good. it. That makes me happy. The Vestal Virgins, though, were very respected in Rome, so much so that they held the wills of every person in the Roman Empire because they were the only trusted people. This is the head Vestal Virgin. They've dedicated their whole life to this. And now it's like, and and in Rome, if you served your thirty years, you could get married afterwards. Right. It's yeah. Like, right. It's like there is a time limit. Mm-hmm. So like this person is basically like <laughs> counting down to retirement. Right. And then everything they have worked towards is upset, and now they're getting married to, to the, the emperor. emperor person. <laughs> the emperor person. <laughs> And it's crazy. It's just like that's such a disruption. It is a disruption. And people are mad because they are supposed to be the purest people in the empire and they see it as really terrible. Well, and it kind of makes a mockery of it. It's yes. kind of like, yeah, Elagabalus is saying, I don't actually believe that this is real. So I don't care about changing the rules. And I feel mm-hmm. like that would feel very disrespectful to me as a member of the society of like, well, then why do we have this? Right. If you're just going to come in and change it. I wonder if Elagabalus thought that they were so holy that that's the only person holy enough to, like, have a child with. Yeah. Like, that's how, yeah. like, the way that they felt about religion seems a very extreme. Yeah. I, yeah, I could see that, too. Like, they see it as, like, no, this is even more holy, whereas everyone else is saying it is very less holy. Right. <laughs> so then they take it a step farther and have themselves circumcised. Which is not a Roman thing. Okay. But Elagabalus is like, I need to do this. But the Roman Empire sees it as a degradation of the male form. And then takes it a step further and says, I'm no longer going to eat swine. Which is a very Jewish thing. I need Uh a clean body. Uh I need to be circumcised. Both very Jewish things. Mm -hmm. Elagabalus forced the Senate to watch while they danced in circles during these long ceremonies around statues and performed in jewels and makeup and all these things. Um, And every year on solstice, they would have this big festival where they dressed up in gold and jewels and rode a chariot around the city in a big parade of their own god. Okay. But the question of Elagabalus' gender identity has been confused by many and talked about by opposing sides for a long time. First thing we should know is there are three ancient historians that are important. Um, Herodian, Augustian, and Dio. Two of them are from um, Elagabalus' time period and one's from a couple hundred years later. Okay. And they are very, like, um, they kind of tear them them apart and then also, like, say some truths mixed in. So it was very hard to splice out. Okay. So what we find out is Elagabalus was married to at least five women twice to the same Vestal version because they get divorced and then remarried. But he also was very involved with this chariot rider. Uh, Elagabalus is at a race and this chariot rider falls off a horse, takes his helmet off, and is just like (laughs) the picture of perfection. Elagabalus sends a letter, bring the chariot rider to my room, Tell them to wait for me. And they are like in cahoots the rest of their lives. Oh, wow. Yeah. This guy, um, Herocles or something like that, is like then the partner to Elagabalus for a very long time. Elagabalus calls themselves his wife. Okay. So Elagabalus says, I am the wife to this man. Okay. 
and would do like role play games where Elagabalus would go and have sex with a woman, tell his partner to come in, take him, beat him for cheating, and then Elagabalus would go and brag to the ladies in waiting the next day about how much his chariot rider lover loves him. Elaborate. It's very elaborate. elaborate. Again, this is from well, these weird historians that we don't know. Like, maybe they were into rough sex, and we don't, like, that was odd. Maybe right. he was very open. Maybe Elagabalus and his chariot rider boyfriend, the chariot rider boyfriend, are very open about their rough sex, and people are, like, hiding their gayness right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know, like, what's happening in society, so it's hard to say. It is hard to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not the only man that Elagabalus was married to. Um, at a point, somebody said he had had a crush. They had had a crush on their tutor. And then also Aurelius Zodicus was another male lover. Okay. So there's lots of women, lots of men that Elagabalus is with. Also, it was said that he prostituted himself, themself out to taverns and brothels. Interesting. So, again... We don't know because these historians were not in favor of this emperor person. Right. It's a very biased history. Super biased. But also, like, there is something about Elagopolis that is seems more sexually liberated than, like, most people were at the time. Or very much so. More, more than most people were writing about themselves mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. you know, to be clear. Like, I'm sure there were other people also role playing and doing things like that because there always have been. But Elagopolis, I think that because they came to power at such a young age, they have this sense of, like, I don't need to be as protective about what I'm doing. Like, yes. it almost made them feel invincible, even though an emperor of an older age might feel like, oh, I know how precarious my situation is. So I think Elagopolis had, like, a false sense of, like, indestructibility. I think so, too. <laughs> I also think, though, that... <laughs> The only comparison I could think of is that, like, Elagabalus is on the Jersey Shore, and the Senate is at Yale, and Elagabalus shows up. Yes. The people at the Jersey Shore, I am not shunning you. I love you. No. I think you're amazing. This yeah. is not an insult. I think you're out of your element at Yale mm-hmm. and at Harvard, and I think the people at Harvard and Yale are out of their element on the Jersey Shore. Like the television show, not the place. Right, right. Like, not, yeah, not yeah, the yeah. Whole <laughs> not the whole Jersey clear. Shore. I just think that is the connection. Like, this is a stodgy Roman capital. Yes. When we think of the Roman Empire, yes, it's diverse and boisterous and uh-huh. crazy and wild. Well, he was from, they were from one of the boisterous, crazy, wild cities. Yeah. And ends up in the Ivory Tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. That's very hard. Yeah. So, as we said, the emperor was often reported to wear makeup and wigs and preferred to be called a lady, not a lord, preferred to be called an empress, not an emperor, um, and offered. This one I'm not clear on. After the circumcision, people started writing that they offered large sums of money to any physician who could provide them with a vagina by means of incision. So some people wrote that Elagabalus wanted to be fully, um, have a full sex change. Okay. But I don't know if that's judgment on circumcision 
or if that's what Elagabalus was actually asking for. Right. It's a, it could go either way. Either way. way. It's yeah. very hard. Yeah, because I, I could see that, like, there's a person at this point, like, why isn't it possible? Like, mm -hmm. why can't you just... Right. Cut a hole. Yeah. A yeah. Hole. yeah. It'll mm -hmm. work. Right. It'll be fine. But it's, like, so complicated. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. This is very interesting. Isn't it so interesting? Yes. So the the foreign conduct of the guards, people starting to turn on Elagabalus, Grandma Julia, remember her? She's still here, mm -hmm. suggested like, hey, you don't have any heirs. Maybe like just in case, let's you adopt your cousin who's two years younger than you, mm -hmm. Alexander. Um, and then if if something was to happen to you. Our family has a male heir. Yes. Elagabalus is like, okay, I'll seek approval to adopt Alexander. Julia Jr., the second child. Uh -huh. Julia, Julia, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> the three Julias. <laughs> the other movie. Uh -huh. <laughs> the three Julias. Um, and they are adopted, and they're Alexander is second in command, but the guard and the Senate and the army start to love Alexander better than Elagabalus. Alexander, like, understands them and is one of them, even though he's from the same family, mm -hmm. not as eccentric, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Elagabalus orders many attempts at Alexander's life because they're so upset. They order poisoning and drowning, and none of it works because Grandma Julia is like, I will protect this person yeah. with my life. Uh -huh. Um, so then invents a rumor. Elagabalus says, well, I killed him. Kind of trying to test the loyalty of the army. And they start freaking out. Like, you killed Alexander? Of course he didn't. But the people start rioting. They're rioting. And they're like, we're not going to stop rioting until you bring Alexander out here so we can see that you did not kill him. He's like, wow, you do like Alexander more than Yes. Shit. So Elagabalus is like, fine, I'll bring Alex out. And um, he uh, is publicly presented. And this is March 222, 2022. No, 222. Uh, to be like, look, Alex isn't dead. And the soldiers start like cheering. And then Elagabalus is like trying to make these announcements, but nobody's listening. And they're like talking over the emperor. And Elagabalus is like, anybody who's not listening to me, I'm killing you for insubordination. Like, right here on the spot. And the army's like, fuck that. Like, yeah. there's a thousand of us and one of you. Like, what are you talking about? So Elagabalus and his mother run. They run and, like, hide in a latrine, but are immediately found because there's an entire army and grandma who's pulling the strings and Alexander. They're taken out of the latrine. Their heads are cut off. They're stripped naked, taken through the streets, and then thrown in the Tibris. Oh, God. Um, Elagabalus's longtime male lover, the chariot rider, is executed. Uh, the religious edicts are all taken away. The stone of the heavens is sent back. <laughs> uh, women were once again barred from the Senate. And they erase Elagabalus from the city. 
they recarve all the statues of Elagabalus with Alexander's face, and they start scratching him out of everything else. Um, after death, uh, to support Alex and Alex's claim to the throne, a lot of historians write how bad he was. Here's some of the things they say. He sold titles to whoever wanted them. Dancers and barbers. Whoever wanted a title, he sold them a title. So that's bad, you know, letting the lower class be, you know, heard. <laughs> Selling titles to people. Um, they say that Elagabalus sold titles to anybody with a large male organ. Elagabalus very into the penis. A lot of these things about Elagabalus are like he would, they would send out people to find people with large penises and bring them back to the kingdom. They say, they talk about the role play with the beating and the chariot boy. They go as far to say he, he, like had young boys sacrificed on altars and then would cut off their genitalia and throw it at cages of monkeys that Elagabalus had gotten. This is what they're saying about Elagabalus, that they would go to the theater and make them do the sex scenes properly instead of just being in theater, that they would go to the Olympic Games early and throw out hundreds of snakes, (gasps) that they went and made the slaves go to the mountains and bring them snow that they told the slaves to collect spider webs to see how many spiders are in Rome. What? Um they are this th- is a, like too much to be true. It's too that's the thing. That's the thing. It's yeah. too much to be true and I think that that's why the history is so jarbled. Like yeah. this person is probably a queer person probably or could have been a transgender person but we can't take for fact everything that people are saying and i'm refusing to like label yeah. them without permission like it's very it's a very fine line to walk because a lot of people call elagabalus the empress of rome like the first uh-huh. empress of rome and it's like but we don't necessarily know that Right. And I don't want to go as far as to say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some cool things that Elagabalus did that people said they liked. Um, at their dinner parties, they would put prizes on the back of spoons, like carved in. So if you Fun. flipped your spoon over and it was like, you get 12 new slaves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you get you get a lion. <laughs> like people loved that. People All talked right. far and wide about that. Maybe smaller gifts next dinner party, but you and know. Then also <laughs> They created this, like, you know how people would sit on pillows around a table? Yeah. They created this, like, air cushion filled with air that, like, could release, like, a whoopee cushion on the <laughs> It would, like, flatten in the middle of dinner while they would sit on their pillow and they would just fall. That's pretty good. It's fun. These are the pranks. I the guess. pranks, the, the pranks. pranks, things like that. I really like. And then Elagabalus heard that people in the streets loved getting gifts, and like you would think, like an emperor would throw out gold, he would like catapult cattle. Like no, <laughs> you want a cow? You get a cow. You get a cow. Oh my gosh! So that um, these are just like the stories, and I just so much of it is an exaggeration. But like I said at the top. 
this is just so much proof that gender queer has always been yeah. an important part of history and always been a discriminated part of history because what we're seeing is people that are purposefully treating this person badly for a lot of reasons and one of the reasons is that they were not gender conforming right because the stories would not be so extreme right if they didn't hate them so much for this particular thing Correct. it's like that's why it's hard to really parse out what's true and what's not because what's probably true is that like you're saying they were non-gender conforming and right. the people writing the history did not like that the yeah. people that disagreed with them made that the focal point rather than any real fucking thing <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um his grandma died in 224 that's the end of the story 224 two years okay. after they died interesting okay all right well. well now i need to talk about these two people together in conversation in a little segment we like to call just the two of us okay so this these are two very different stories, but I do feel like there are some similarities in that society and families and all these sorts of things are changing in both of these time periods. And these people are kind of integral to these changes. Yeah, there there's a lot of family drama happening. There's mm -hmm. a lot of parental drama. There's a lot of spousal drama. Mm -hmm. Like I just kept like I felt like people in these stories kept getting married and married and married and married yeah. and like <laughs> and, and it's like nobody had like a steady solid something going on for a really long time because I I want to mention that I didn't say before, Elagabalus ruled for four years and was like 19. Four years. Like 19 when, when they, they died. Beheaded. Yeah. Oh, my God. Very young, like 16 to 19 or <sighs> whatever, 15 to 19. It was very short and very sad. Well, and that's the thing is like when you are a person behind the change, like a lot of times people do not or like change is very difficult. So right. I think Elagopolis was very ahead of their time and like on the front end of the change whereas Anora was kind of on the back end of change so Anora was kind of piggybacking off of other enlightened uh, enlightenment era people mm -hmm. who were already all saying the same thing it's right like she based she based her research off of other philosophers and other people who had come before her you know and I feel like Elagopolis was like the first person of their kind to be like, I'm going to make all these changes. I'm which is showing always up. the hardest position to be sure. in. Sure. You know, and I just feel like we're talking about two very big societal things, which are education and religion. <laughs> yeah, education and religion, but they both came from a very weird background where it's like, I kind of grew up in a palace. Yes. My family is like kind of involved with some really famous people. And then I think they both also for a long time had somebody else pulling the strings. Right. And Honora had like, and I think both of them had a couple people doing it. Yeah. Because Honora had two dads. Who yeah. Were both kind of powerful figures in the Litchfield community. And a husband. Um, and a husband. And Rousseau. And Rousseau. <laughs> and like a famous <clears throat> adopted sister slash possible lover you know like there are a lot of like powerful people in her story and i feel like elagabalus had a very similar thing of like there are a lot of important people in their story that are kind of dictating how their story is told and i was thinking about this a lot when it comes to like writing over history because the book that Honora was working on, Practical Education, is now credited to her stepdaughter, Maria Edgeworth. 
And I think that that's very interesting because it's like Anora really did the initial research and she started the whole project. And you had kind of a similar thing. Well, Elagabalus was literally written out of history as if they like did nothing. And that was just like a huge mistake. Yeah, it's and like, oh, cousin's in charge. Done. Right. Yeah. And I kind of think that there's also a thing about like taking advantage of some people, you know, like I feel like there's taking advantage of a young person, which is Elagabalus. And, you know, I think that's something that Enora was trying to overcome. I think Enora was like, we should not be ignoring young people. Like they have something important to say, like when they're asking questions, let them do that. Like, let's give young people more agency so that people like Elagopolis maybe don't feel like they have to like do these crazy things to be noticed well also like maybe the one place practical education shouldn't exist is being an emperor person yeah like that's the last time you should learn on the job <laughs> like you yes if you're ruling a kingdom like as large as the roman empire like and i think that was cool that um anora is trying to figure out what works yeah uh-huh. if this doesn't work with my older stepchild what works with my next stepchild what a cool acknowledgement that people at different ages have different brain capacity yes and i think in the roman empire they taught people and they treated people in their teenage years as if they're full adults and they're not and we didn't know that then (laughs) we know that now yeah yeah absolutely their brains aren't formed and nora is a part of us knowing that like this isn't working for my older stepchildren but it does work for my younger stepchildren Mm -hmm. what a great research acknowledgement yeah and the fact that like she didn't force maria to like stay at home with her and like try out methods on her she's like you know what you are a little older. Why don't we send you to school and, you know, let you get a better education Mm -hmm. because I'm still figuring it out, which I think is a really big kind of thing to admit to yourself when like, you're like, I'm figuring this out. So like, since you are a bit older, like I'm going to give this to the people who are doing what they can, but I am going to try and fix the systems and like spread your wings. And I think that's why Maria grew up not having any resentment. You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, from the way that Wikipedia said it, it's like they sent her off to boarding school, but it's also like that ended up being a really like good place for her. And because a lot of people went to boarding school. She became yeah. a very well-known writer. Like, yeah. It was a good thing for her. And I think that that's what Elagopolis maybe needed was someone to kind of be like, you know what? I'm not doing right by you. Why don't we change the path? Mm-hmm. Why don't we take That's a, what grandma should have done. That's what grandma should have done. Grandma should have been like, Instead of just like letting you do whatever you want, like, why don't we take a beat, (laughs) figure out what our plan is. But I feel like the grandma was mainly focused on kind of asserting power again, like cutting people down and killing them on the road so that they could have this air of confidence when they came Mm, in. And mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I just think that Anora was trying to break down that system of fake it till you make it. She's like, why don't we actually see what works? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that is not what Elagopolis and their grandmother was doing. Yeah. I mean, I also liked that Nora's um, adopted sister was also like genderqueer, possibly, or a lesbian. Mm -hmm. Like, and was at the very least knew who Sappho was and was trying to portray the ideas of Sappho. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. Um, Totally agree. I think that's interesting because, again, it proves that throughout history, through the colonial era, through the Victorian era, through the Roman era, like Mm -hmm. people are people are people. And we're going to love who we love Mm -hmm. and we're going to be who we are regardless of how you label us or what our name is. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought that was very special that it came up in your story without you knowing what my story was. And I I think. And maybe Honora was also like maybe she did have a you know romantic relationship with Anna, and then also had a romantic relationship with her husband. It's like again, it's like we just don't give people in history enough space mm-hmm. because we'll never know what they were actually feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of these histories again were written out or carved over or just kind of removed yeah and i mean it's it's also like it'd be so easy to just say oh like these people were bisexual mm-hmm. but also they could have spent the first half of their life trying to conform mm-hmm. to what society expected mm-hmm. and then spent the second half of their life exploring what they actually felt so it's so yeah. the labels just the labels we have now in the 21st century just don't apply they can't and i think it does no. a little bit of a disservice like i mm-hmm. trust me representation is so important Mm -hmm. but i just don't think forcing representation is is healthy yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's not the answer yeah but exploring the topics are fun oh so (laughs) fun we love the topic all right now who would you like to toast this evening so as you all probably noticed and i anticipated this ahead of time that the drunker i got and the faster i talked and the more i got into the story the more i would say he So my toast tonight is for all the trans people who have asked their family Mm -hmm. and their friends to change their pronouns or to say they them and they slip up when they're drunk Mm -hmm. or when they're tired. And my toast is not for them. It's for the fact that you hear it at 10 times the volume that everybody else hears it. Yeah. So the toast is for you for dealing with that with people who do and don't accept you. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. I'm going to toast the women who have great ideas and are on the right track, but are unable to finish their work. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I'm going to go right for it. Okay. I'm sure you watched it on Halloween because I got your text. We watched it on Halloween after we got back from trick-or-treating. The Nightmare Before Christmas, it gets you out of the spooky mood and into the Christmas mood with just such a blast of fun. I love it. 30 years old this year, mm-hmm. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Really? 30 years this year. It came year. out in 1993? Yeah. We're both turning 30? You are together. <gasps> and it came out a couple days after you were born. That's what's interesting because it was right before Halloween. This must be why I feel so connected to it this movie. It has to be. I, I watched it twice this Halloween It's a squirt movie, man. Oh, I love it. And um, I just, th- I think it's a great movie. I love Catherine O'Hara. I li- it's so quotable. Uh-huh. It's so fun. And I think claymation is a beautiful lost art. Uh, I love that things like the Lego movie are half stop motion and half um digitized Uh i think that's amazing i love stop motion legos i love claymation stop motion Mm -hmm. Uh, i love the people who do it on tiktok i will watch it endlessly Uh i think you're amazing and talented and however much you put into those three minute videos Mm -hmm. this 
crazy Tim Burton budget. Have you ever watched it on the movies that made us? No, it's on there. I have to. Yeah. So there's a spook. There's like a holiday version of the movies that made us. And it's like Elf and The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I don't think The Nightmare Before Christmas, if one more thing went wrong, that movie wouldn't have existed. And I think it marks a season. Yes. It's it's beautiful. I'm so glad they never tried to make a sequel. Well, I heard that Tim Burton was very against it because they sure. wanted to explore the other holidays and be like, well, next time we'll go into Thanksgiving town. And you want to like, know why that happened? Why they didn't do it? Yeah. Why? So because Disney produced the movie, uh-huh. but they were like, it's too scary when they showed it to kids. So it was always called Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas, not Disney's A Nightmare Before Christmas. So they relinquished some control because it was too scary. So parents write their letters. We don't want them writing it to us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Write it to Tim, to Mr. Burton. So he got the final say because he took the scary vibe and was like, okay, I'll sign off on it. And Disney wouldn't. I love that because, Uh frankly, I mean, Casey fiance just uh watched it with his niece who is what like three or four years old four i think yeah she just she just turned just turned four a couple weeks ago fresh four fresh four and he like her parents 48 months one might say (laughs) (laughs) no so many more 80 whatever 80 something 90 months so her parents showed it to her and they were nervous so like casey did not show the child yes but her parents had and when casey came over she was like i want to watch it again there is something about that movie that gets in your brain. And I I think it's the stop motion. I like, listen to the score when yeah. I'm just running. The score is amazing. It's so good. And I do feel bad because I love Corpse Bride too, but the music is not as good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. just not as... And Coraline is too scary. Coraline's too scary. Well, that's also not a Tim Burton movie. I know, but it's yeah, but Tim it Burton-ish. Is like, it's Tim Burton-esque. And that one is very scary. I don't even understand <laughs> the buttons, the eyes. I'm so confused. Anyway, I just want to promo it because I had such a fun time mm-hmm. watching it in front of the fireplace on Halloween. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. All what right. I'm going to promote an album. Um, it's by Yasmin Lacey. It's mm. called Voice Notes. It is so jazzy and good. And like, it's just like easy listening. Like, it's so fucking delightful. Um, and I found out about this album from... There's a person on, I guess, TikTok, but I see it on Instagram, who goes through their record shop and is like, these are the albums that like you should be listening to. And this was on there. So I looked it up and I was like, he's right. This is a really good fucking album. <laughs> That's what I do with Book Talk. That's where I yes. get all my book recommendations. I think like, yes, get, get some recommendations from the Internet. I fucking love it. And like, I would have never known about this. They also um, recently promoted like, a, like 70s like japanese like funk soul album artist. Fun. So i was like this is Fun. great so like but yeah yasmin lacy is a new artist not from the 70s who <laughs> and there and yeah her album voice notes is so fucking good that's great. so that's what i'm recommending mm. all right well thank you guys for hanging out with us we hope you had a lovely halloween and are having a fantastic start to your november um if you want to hang out with us a little bit more you can pay just as little as a dollar a month and join our patreon you get to hear more about our personal lives and support the cocktail budget which we so appreciate (laughs) desperately appreciate um so thank you all again join us on instagram and facebook and twitter or x or whatever it is and all the things (laughs) the black one and if you could 
rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world. We haven't gotten a rate or review in a couple months. So rude. Come on. Rude. <laughs> Honestly, you're being rude at this point. Please. We're in a whole new season. We need a whole new section of things. We haven't gotten a review since like spring. It's been a it's been a while. It's been a while. So we love you. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women are never emperor people. No. (laughs) (laughs) And they rarely make history. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.